The Old Fashioned is one of the most iconic cocktails on the planet, adored by bourbon lovers worldwide. Three simple ingredients, bourbon, sugar, and bitters, and a bit of fruit, have wowed them since the 19th century. A billion variations have popped up, especially in these cocktail-crazed times, but the true recipe is just perfection and hard to top. Today's episode, we see how the old-fashioned came to be, and that could only begin in one town, Louisville, Kentucky. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. Today just happens to be the launch of my Lush Life Cocktail Collection. Remind everyone how simple it is to make an old-fashioned by wearing one of my old-fashioned t-shirts. Head to alushlifemanual.com backslash merch to check these out. Remember that every penny goes to bring you more lush life. Back to the old-fashioned and its origins. As David Wanrich, the award-winning cocktail writer, says, anyone who hooks his cart to any cocktail history is going to go off-road. But I truly want to believe that the old-fashioned was invented at the Penn Dennis Club. So that's where we're beginning. James Gerhardt, the general manager of one of Louisville's oldest private clubs and where the old-fashioned is purported to have been invented, is here to tell you his side of the story. Then we pop down to Whiskey Row and Old Forester's new distillery to meet Holly McKnight to see how their bourbon fits into this jigsaw puzzle of old-fashioned history. After that, we wander down Whiskey Row to let George Harrison explain how we wouldn't even have bourbon if it weren't for Evan Williams. For the pure enjoyment of this episode, I would skip ahead to our cocktail of the week and while stirring, double back to savor the story ahead. Well, yeah, let's start with cocktails. Uh, cocktails, cocktails were invented, if you will, to soften bourbon. Um, Back in the earlier days, it was considered scandalous if you would knock your bourbon back, which means, you know, to add distilled water to it, to lower the proof. So they actually had to make a, a softer version of this for women to enjoy because most of the bourbon that was served in the earlier days was right out of the cast, and it was really hot and really powerful. So that's kind of the thinking behind the cocktail, was to make it a little bit easier uh, as far as an entry or enjoyable uh, as far as a product for women. So, uh, and it's, it's James Pepper, who, who owned a distillery out of Lexington, who is credited officially with inventing the old fashioned. He was a member here. He uh, uh, owned a distillery in Lexington. Uh, he was also a member of a couple of clubs in Lexington. He moved to New York uh, in the late 1800s. Uh, and uh, it was in New York where he made this, this beverage for the bartender at the Waldorf Astoria. Well, this guy was so impressed by it, he asked if, if uh, he could have the recipe and also you know, some of the bourbon uh, used in Kentucky bourbon. Uh, to recreate this drink. The drink was a huge, huge hit in New York. And so that's why you kind of get, you know, the Waldorf Astoria saying, well, we invented the old fashioned, or you'll have other older hotels or clubs where Pepper was also a member 
saying that uh, it was invented there. But the, the original one came from the Pendennis. So, and we're certain of that. <laughs> so the bourbon that you used all along to make uh, it, was it always the same kind of bourbon house that was creating it? Well, uh, there, in the earlier days, there were so many distilleries. And certainly James Pepper isn't the founder of Old Forester. Old Forester is a brown foreman product. And Owsley Brown uh, was uh, uh, the, the president at the time when the pen, this, this building that the Pendennis is housed in now was built. So there is a loyalty to Old Forester as the original, bur- or the original bourbon used for, uh, for the old fashioned. And basically that's because this building was completed uh, in, in um, 1929 in September. Uh, one month before the Great Depression. And Owsley Brown guided us through that Great Depression. So uh, he also had uh, Old Forester designated as a medicinal spirits product. So there was a lot of medicine dispensed here at the Pendennis Club. Which means he could sell it during Prohibition, right? So he He never stopped selling it. Well, uh, well, certainly for medicinal purposes, he... He kept on brewing uh, Old Forester bourbon, and uh, certainly that helped uh, everybody along. So no wonder the rumor that everyone was sick in Louisville during, <laughs> for, for, for 10 years, a, whatever. A little bit of what else. <laughs> so, but it's labeled Pendennis bourbon. Yes, and, and that's because uh, we over the years, and, and this has been going on for generations, uh, members will get together and will sample several different barrels, okay, and and then select the barrel that we like the best, and that becomes our Pendennis bourbon. So, and that's the reason for some of the label changes that you see over the years, because it, it uh, it's it's a living product, if you will. It's something that uh, once the barrel is finished, and oh, that's that, that's several dozen cases. Uh, once that's finished, then we go on to our next barrel selection. And, and uh, that, that's one of the more popular committees. There's a line to get in on that one. So. I was going to say, how yeah. long do you have to be a member to get yeah. on that, well, <laughs> that the, committee? Yeah, they're only certificate-holding members, which means they have voting privileges and, uh, uh, and, and a couple other perks. I want to become so. an honorary member <laughs> just to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Is there anything else that you think you want to tell me? Well, uh, you know, there, this isn't the only uh, beverage that the Pendennis is, uh, is famous for. Uh, there, there's also a Pendennis cocktail, and that was invented by uh, members. And, and, and I would encourage uh, uh, your listeners to go ahead and Google that or, or pull up some information on that because it is a delightful hot weather cocktail. The way that came about was some of the members had residences in Florida. And uh, so they were looking for a, a uh, drink that they could enjoy over the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the winter months while they were uh, vacationing uh, in sunny Florida. And then there's also one other one, uh, the Juniper. Uh, uh, and there's a Juniper Club here. And that cocktail is enjoyable as well. Who doesn't want to be part of that committee? Choosing right from the barrel, the dream team. My next stop was the newly opened Old Forester Distillery on Whiskey Row to meet Holly. Old Forester was founded in 1870 by a man named George Garvin Brown. George Garvin Brown was a 25-year-old 
pharmaceutical salesman. He, um, his clients of the day were prominent physicians in Louisville who complained because the patients that were getting medicinal whiskey prescriptions were getting sick from the whiskey. And that's because in, at that time it was sold by the barrel to what would essentially be a pharmacy. Um, but in the process of getting to the patient may have been filled with all kinds of other additives uh, to basically make the whiskey stretch further. So his idea was, I will get some great bourbon. I will seal it in a glass bottle. I will sign my name on it as a guarantee of its quality and consistency so that the doctors know that they can prescribe Old Forester with confidence. And what he did really was totally change the game forever. He put whiskey in a glass bottle. um, And then a lot of, you know, everyone else obviously followed suit. And so I guess what happened during Prohibition? So uh, because of this kind of early commitment to quality and this great reputation uh, for consistency, George Garvin Brown was granted one of just six licenses to continue uh, selling medicinal whiskey through Prohibition. So Old Forester is the only brand that is was sold before, during, and after Prohibition by the same company. It's never changed hands. Um, it's all still been controlled by the Brown family, George Garvin Brown's ancestors. Um, now, you told me that he was quite a religious man, and there was this temperance. He was. The- Go ahead. George, so George Garvin Brown was a very uh, religious man. He was a Christian. He was a uh, Presbyterian, actually. And um, the Presbyterians were big fans of the temperance movements, but obvious, uh, obviously George Garvin Brown was not. So he actually wrote a book called The Holy Bible Repudiates Prohibition, where he went through and pulled various passages to support the responsible consumption of alcohol. He ended up leaving the Presbyterian church over prohibition and uh and became an episcopalian remained a devout christian um but just needed to go somewhere that aligned a little more with his uh ideals so so old forester why is it called that so old forester was named initially after one of his clients dr william forester he was a friend of his he was a surgeon in the Union Army. He was a well-regarded physician in Louisville. And so signing his name, putting his name on the bottle was, you know, an endorsement deal of the day. Um, When he retired, um, there was no longer the need for that endorsement. And so Old Forester, F-O-R-R-E-S-T-E-R, became Old Forester with just one R. I guess because it was already known as Old Forester. Yeah, Yeah, and we didn't need that celebrity endorsement. Uh-huh. unquote anymore and did the bottle stay the same um, then because you guys you, have some really cool bottles right, in your yeah. collection so if you go through we have archives dating all the way back I think the first bottle that we actually still have is from the 1890s mm-hmm. um, but you know yeah his he was it, when George Garvin Brown founded Old Forester he was um, not a distiller he was a blender so he would buy uh, whiskey from three different distilleries, blend it into what became Old Forester. It was a 90 proof product at the time. And that could um, kill anything. Yeah. yeah. Could, whatever, whatever ailed Whatever, you. exactly. And, um, and he would, uh, you know, then bottle it. Later down the road, he did end up buying one of those distilleries and became, um, became a distiller. And uh, then, you know, Old Forester's. Uh-huh. 
But you guys were like the first to do a special bottle, right? Yeah. So it was uh, in the 50s. We were the first to do kind of a holiday decanter. The holiday decanter program went on for a little bit more than a decade. Uh, You can still find some out on the bottle swaps and eBay and various, uh, you know, things on the internet. You can find some of those bottles. If you're lucky, you'll find one. It still has Old Forester in it. Well, of course, I'm sitting here in this incredibly fabulous new facility that you guys just opened in June. Um, why did you decide to have this um, kind of tourist experience now? So obviously the bourbon is booming. Mm-hmm. It's a growing category. And Old Forester is and has been for, you know, forever, Louisville's kind of hometown bourbon. It's the bourbon that you go to somebody's house in Louisville and it's going to be sitting on the back bar in every house. Um, known for great value for the money, really great product. Um and obviously a lot of local heritage. And as bourbon started to grow, a lot of distilleries began opening up, not just in the bourbon trail out in the state, but some down on Whiskey Row. And what Old Forester has that maybe somebody, some of these other brands don't have is this true history right here on Whiskey Row in this exact building. So from 1882 to 1919, George Garvin Brown um, and then later his son Owsley ran Old Forester out of the building that we are in today. Um, it did change hands after that um, for a while, but um, as bourbon is booming, Brown Foreman starts to think about what can we do, and we have, this building is available, we buy it back, um, kind of saved it really from um, from the wrecking ball, because it was, this whole block was really at its end. Um, and Paul Varga, our CEO said, if we're gonna do this, we're gonna do it right. I don't want it to be Disneyland. I want this to be a world-class visitor experience that also distills great whiskey. It has to have both components. It can't be just one or the other. Um, and so that's you know where you ended up with what we have here. It was a, a $45 million, 70,000 square foot distillery, and it is fully functional. You, you can go from everything to fermentation, followed through distillation you're going to get to see a cooperage here which um, which you can't really experience in a lot of places because brown foreman is the only major spirits company in the world that makes all their own barrels so we have this on-site cooperage where you can watch coopers make and fire barrels and then we're going to fill those barrels here and we're going to take them to our aging warehouse on site um and then bottle and of course taste the best part of, <laughs> of course now do you ever feel mr brown's ghost around here i wouldn't say his ghost but oh. definitely um george garvin brown spirit is with us all the time i do think there are a few ghosts in this building i've heard some various stories we don't think it's george's ghost though. well but let's let's hope it's george's ghost no <laughs> a walk down whiskey row to the evan williams bourbon experience to meet george and bow down to the man himself who was alleged to be the first producer of bourbon ever. Well, Evan Williams came to this part of the world from Wales. Um, he was a Welshman, and he came here to find some fame and fortune in the U.S., like a lot of people did in those days, um, in wait. the early 1800s. Great. Um, now, uh, one thing that he, when he came here, he brought along his tradition of distilling from that part of the world. And one thing we generally tell people is you you distill what you grow. And when he got here, the major crop that was grown was corn. 
And so he started distilling corn and making corn whiskey. Um, and he did it really well. Uh, people liked his whiskey. And so um, he, in uh, 1783, applied to be um, the, the, a licensed distiller um, in the state of Kentucky. And so in 1783, he became the first licensed distiller in the state of Kentucky. Um, and his, his actual distillery was in a building that used to be across the street from where we are right now. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually an historical marker over there that talks about that. Um, so, uh, so he came here from a little town in Wales whose name I can't really pronounce well. It's something like Pujueli. I think only um, the Welsh and can pronounce yes, their own name. Yes, I believe Trust that's me. correct. I believe <laughs> that's correct. But they, you know, so that was his, um, uh, that was the town he came from. But, uh, he was very, very well known in this, in this area. Um, interestingly, uh, he passed away in 1810. And his uh, his distillery did not survive his passing. Did his, he wait? Did he call when he bottled it? Did he call it Evan Williams? I don't know that there's a record of that. Uh -huh. um, uh, I think it was basically just known as Evan Williams whiskey. That right. it was his whiskey. Okay. So then they had to shut when he died. So mm -hmm. then what? How did the name come back again? So um, in the mid fifties, the Shapira family that owns Heaven Hill, and maybe we can step back a little okay. bit from there. Um, uh, prohibition happened and it basically wiped out all the distilleries that were down here. There were over 40 distilleries downtown in Louisville at that time. Well, when prohibition was enacted, it wiped all of that out. Uh, when prohibition was repealed, the 18th amendment repealed it. Um, then there were some people who wanted to start distilling again. Um, and they approached these five brothers. They were the Shapira brothers. Um, and they said, would you want to be in the distilling business? And they were here in central Kentucky and they said, yes, we would. What were they doing so, before? Um, they were, uh, they were successful businessmen. Otherwise they had, um, uh, stores, uh, like, um, what we would call department stores today. Um, and so, uh, they were approached in 1934 and they said, yes, we'll be involved. And it, they, the first barrel, um, uh, was, uh, was produced in, uh, or the first whiskey went into the first barrel in December of 1935. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, it was actually December 13th, which was a Friday. Uh -huh. Um, so, uh, so they did their first, um, um, uh, barrel. Uh, but after that, because it was such a difficult time, it was still, it was still the depression and things weren't the best. So some of the initial investors went to the brothers and said, we can't afford to do this anymore. Um, if, if you don't buy us out, we're just going to let everything go. Mm -hmm. And the brothers talked to each other and said, let's stay in the business. And they did. Um, so they basically bought out the other investors and they remained in the business. And one of the reasons they were able to do that was because of their other businesses, their stores that they had. They were um, that helped to support the business for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, they kept it going. And um, uh, in uh, we filled the first barrel in 1935. Um, they filled their 500,000th barrel in 1957. Um, but right around that time, right around the mid-50s, to get back to your original question, right. um, that's when um, they took on Evan Williams' name to represent one of their brands. How did they find out about Evan Williams? I'm not sure exactly how they found out about it. Um, uh, partially, it might be because where we are right now is directly across the street from where he used to be. And so that might have been part of the it. The urban myth. Kind could of. be. Uh -huh. That could be. 
So that was, I'm sorry, that was when? When did um, they take the name? They took the, it was in the mid 50s. I don't know the exact date. It was mm-hmm. in the mid 50s. Mm-hmm. And so they had been making bourbon all along, and now yes. they've got Evan Williams. Now they had Evan Williams' name, um, and, uh, and it just sort of took off from there. Okay, great. That's fabulous. All right. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. If James, Holly, and George didn't make you thirsty for an old-fashioned, I'm not sure anything would. A special thanks goes out to Jeff Watroy, who took the time to make me feel at home at the Pendennis Club, and to Jeff Crow at the Evan Williams Bourbon Experience. Also, I couldn't have done this without the support of everyone at Kentucky Tourism. Can you guess what our cocktail of the week is? Who better to explain how to make the Pendennis old-fashioned but the man himself, Tom Curley, the bartender. So, tell me how it goes. Okay, like I said, put just a little touch of simple syrup in an old-fashioned glass. Couple wedges of orange. Cherry in each glass. And very important that uh, there's different type of bitters, but the Angostura bitters is the best. I'm using a little bit heavy on that. And even more important than that is mud on the fruit, because many times I try to take a, a shortcut and drinks were sent back because I was just trying to save time. I learned the hard way that mud on these guys is the key. Time for a little ice. And we had some special pendentist bourbon for this event. And when we're all finished, we do like a just a little splash of tap water. And some people, before they drink them, would stir it around a little bit and bring all the mixture of the bottom to the top. I don't know how Jeff Watchroy drinks it, but quickly. <laughs> and we've done a few of these over over the last hundred plus years. In my case, thirty. And I hope you all enjoy. Or if you didn't get that, here it is again. In an old-fashioned glass, put a quarter-sized pour of simple syrup in the bottom of the glass. Add two dashes of Angostura bitters, an orange wedge, and a maraschino cherry. Muddle gently without smashing everything together. Then pour 2.5 ounces of bourbon onto the ingredients and add ice, and then stir. Then settle back down to watch the races from Churchill Downs. You'll find this recipe and a few more recipes straight from Louisville at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop.
If you're heading to Louisville anytime soon, check out my Lush Guide to the Urban Bourbon Trail on alushlifemanual.com. Discover where you can watch barrels being made right in front of your eyes. Next time on Lush Life, St. Kevin will be calling us all to County Wicklow, Ireland for a sip of one of the Glendalough Distillery Spirits. If he isn't available, then Gary McLaughlin, one of the co-founders, will gladly fill in. Before running off, remember to head to alushlifemanual.com backslash merch for all your Lush Life gifts. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast. For more information and links to everything you've heard, plus a whole lot more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra. And I'm your drinking partner, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar. <laughs>